Well, good morning. I am so glad to be here. It is certainly an honor and a delight, and I bring both hellos and gratitude from Ozark Christian College. Uh, I was a student there years ago and have now joined the ministry, uh, as Kevin said, uh, for the third year. I'll be here this year, and I've had multiple students from uh, this particular congregation, and I've actually met some parents today of students I didn't even realize were from here. And so we're grateful not only because you sending us students helps pay the bills, but um, more importantly because we get a lot of joy out of teaching uh, students to come from healthy churches and sending them back out into the church to continue serving. And so that's uh, precisely what we see our role as doing. I do remember going up in the church and having guest speakers come from different places, and if my memory serves me correctly, every time we'd have a guest speaker, they'd always begin with a really cheesy joke. So I figure, why break tradition? Here's my best attempt. At one time, Jesus and Satan were having an argument about who was better on the computer. They were going on and on about this for days, and finally, God was tired of it. He was uh, fed up with all the bickering, and so he said, that's it. I'm going to create a test that's going to last about two hours long, two hours precisely, and it's going to be able to determine once and for all which of the two of you is better on a computer. So they hit the timer, it started, and Satan and Jesus sat down at the keyboards and they worked away. Uh, They searched, they faxed, they imported images, they exported Word documents into PDFs, they sent emails, they sent emails with attachments, they created spreadsheets and generated reports and did charts and graphs and Working on and on and on, Jesus worked with heavenly efficiency, and Satan was faster than, well, Satan was fast. And then about an hour and 50 minutes into this contest, 10 minutes before the thing was up, uh, the power went out. I mean, nothing. Satan began cursing with all sorts of words that made the angels blush. Uh, Jesus just sat back and relaxed. Nine minutes go by, no power. Then with one minute left, the power comes back on. Satan looks at his computer and just says, it, it's gone, it's all gone, I, I lost everything. And meanwhile, Jesus just sits back calmly and begins printing out the work that he had accomplished over the previous two hours. Satan sees this and he becomes irate. Wait a second, that's not fair, he cheated. How come he has all his work and I have none of mine? And God just shrugged his shoulders and said, Jesus saves. Yep. Yeah, I endorse neither the theology nor the comedic value of that particular joke, but I do like the punchline, Jesus saves. It's a common enough phrase today, one that we probably ourselves have said. It's one of the few things that you could say inside or outside the church, and most people are going to at least recognize that you're saying something sensible. But what does it mean? I remember probably I don't know, four or five years ago, I was reading an article on ESPN.com from uh, now-retired sports writer Rick Riley, and it was during the days when Tim Tebow was what everybody was talking about, and he was writing this particular piece on Tebow's efforts to serve and show kindness to, uh, to other people, and, and he was writing essentially as, if, as a way of saying, I may not share his beliefs, but I certainly appreciate what he's doing, and there was a line within this article that stood out to me, and I've never forgotten it. Here's exactly what he wrote. He says, this is Rick Riley, the sports writer, writing about Tim Tebow. He says, I'm not a religious person. I don't want to be saved. But how can you not be impressed by somebody this bent on helping others? Now, what caught my attention was not his question itself, but the statement, I don't want to be saved. And I wondered then and still now, does he even know what he's saying he doesn't want? And do I? I mean, I think so, but how about if he asked me to explain it to him? Could I do that well? Could I possibly convince him that there was something here that he wants, whether he knows it or not? 
What does it mean to be saved? And how is this something that Jesus accomplishes for anyone? For Rick Riley, for Tim Tebow, for you, for me. Well, that's what I want to talk about today, at least on our first hour together and our first time together. I won't preach for a full hour, I promise. (laughs) And I'm certainly not assuming that you have no idea. I believe in the leadership of this congregation. I believe in the leadership of this church. And so I'm sure you have a pretty good grasp of the gospel. But I am assuming that you could benefit either from gaining a little bit of clarity, if these things are still fuzzy to you, or from hearing again this message, this truth on which you've staked not only your life, but also your eternity. As a matter of fact, one of the most dangerous hindrances to actually hearing the gospel is thinking that we already know all there is to know. Thinking, I'm good. I know what I need to know, and, and I've heard what I need to hear. I remember at the first church I ever served at, I was still a student, and I went to serve as the weekly preacher at Dedrick Christian Church, great church, full of good people. And this one lady, I remember, though, first came up to me week one and said, uh, you know, she was kind of telling me all the different people in the congregation there. And she said, this one guy, I won't say his name, she says, this one guy, he's the only one who doesn't really believe. He's kind of stubborn in his resistance, so he's the only one you really need to preach to. (laughs) Yeah, and I remember thinking, make that two at the very least. You know what I mean? Like, not so fast. You see, long before we deny the gospel, we lose sight of it. Long before we walk away from the truth, we stop thinking about it. Long before we actually reject Jesus, we begin to forget what it is that he looks like. And so if I could make one request of you this morning, it would be that you approach this message, and specifically today's text, as if it contains more than you think. That even if you were to know it perfectly, there's still truth there for you to hear again. When she was about six years old, a little Diane Disney came up to her father and uh, tugged on his jacket and said, "Uh, Daddy, are you Walt Disney? And he looked down and said, well, of course I am, honey. Who did you think I was? And she said, no, I mean, are you the Walt Disney who makes movies? Uh, Some of my friends in class said you were, and I just wanted to find out for myself. And he smiled and said, yes, I'm the Walt Disney that makes movies. And so she takes out a piece of paper and she holds it up to her daddy and she says, "Uh, Daddy, can I have your autograph? He takes out his pen and dashes off his world-famous signature, hands it to her, pats her on the back, and sends her off on her way. And she skipped away to a world that was a little bit larger than the one she had known before. And that's the kind of experience I want you to have with this text. Not that you've never met it before, but that there's more here than any of us ever realized. Our passage is a familiar one, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I want to go ahead and read through the whole thing together. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to divide this into two parts. Really, it would probably take me about six or seven to say all that I'd like to say, and then there'd still be more. But this will give us an opportunity to focus ourselves a little bit during this first time together, and then we'll focus on another portion of this during our second time together. But I want to read the whole thing. So here is uh, God's Word through the Apostle Paul, originally written in a letter to Ephesus and the surrounding churches, but one that speaks powerfully to us. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. One of the first things that you notice when you read this passage is that Paul is drawing a lot of sharp contrasts. It's almost like we could take out a sheet of paper and put a column down the middle and here's column A, and, or put a line down the middle, here's column A, here's column B, and we could just make a list of the different things that fall on either side of this. And uh, it's kind of like what I want to do today. You can make one list for life with Jesus and another list for life without Jesus and then fill them in. It's sort of like how I want to approach this. What I'd like for us to do is to keep things pretty simple and to break this into two parts. The problem and the solution. doesn't get a whole lot simpler than that. What's wrong and what was done to fix it. And so let's first talk about the problem. You see this analyzed in the first few verses of this particular text. Paul talks about the problem. And somebody recently said to me, this is sort of just an offhand remark, but I found it to be pretty insightful. Somebody recently said to me that one of the reasons we sometimes don't hear the full power of this passage is that we don't think the picture of ourselves is as bad as Paul describes it. That very well may be true. And so let's look at what it is Paul actually says is wrong. I think you can break it down in a few ways. First of all, he says we live like everyone else. We follow the ways of the world, is how he puts it in verse 2. And we don't like to think this is the case. I don't live like everybody else. We don't like to think that. We like to think that we dance to the beat of our own drum. We like to think that we will do what's right even if nobody else around us is doing it. We like to think that peer pressure isn't something that has affected us since we were kids. Speaking of kids, I heard one time about this uh, girl named Chrissy. She was a third grader, and she was in her third grade class. And the teacher, I don't know the teacher's name, the teacher for some reason was talking to the students about how she was a Cubs fan. And she was asking them if any of them were Cubs fans. Of course, all of them just wanted to please the teacher, so they raised their hand. Yeah, I'm a Cubs fan, I'm a Cubs fan. Yeah, go Chicago Cubs. Yeah, woo, wonderful. And there was this one girl, though, in the middle of the classroom that didn't raise her hand. She kept her hand down. And the teacher noticed this, and so she said, Chrissy, Chrissy was her name, Chrissy, why didn't you raise your hand? And Chrissy said, well, because I'm a proud fan of the St. Louis Cardinals. She beat her chest twice and pointed to the sky. And the teacher should have probably let this go, but she was, for whatever reason, slightly perturbed. So she asked Chrissy, well, why are you a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals? And Chrissy said, well, because my mommy loves the Cardinals, and my daddy loves the Cardinals, so I love the Cardinals. And the teacher, at this point, should have absolutely let it go. But in an act of sheer unprofessionalism, she asks Chrissy, well, what if your mommy was a moron and your daddy was a moron? What would that make you? Yeah, can you not? But Chrissy was not bothered by this. She didn't flinch. And instead, what she said was, well, that would make me a Cubs fan. (laughs) Uh, No offense to the Cubs fans in the room. We're all one in Christ, of course. This is not your year, but we are all one in Christ, of course. And we love that story in part because it's hilarious and that little girl's wonderful. But we also love it in part because we love to think, yeah, that's me. I'm the one in the middle of the classroom saying, I don't care what the rest of them say. I know the truth. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes I think and look and act and, and value like a lot of the people around me. Lots of people in our world are motivated by a reputation and success. Are you? 
And if you were to say, no, why do you think so much about what other people think of you? Why do you work so hard to keep your secrets secret? Lots of people in our world are driven by this idolatrous need to be productive or to find security. Are you? And if you say no, then why are you so busy? Why are you so anxious and stressed all the time? Lots of people in our world want nothing more than pleasures or comfort. Is this true of you? And if you say no, then why are you lazy? Or why do you tend only to do things that benefit you? I'm not trying to beat you up. Trust me, I'd be beating myself up at the same time. I'm just saying it'd be good if we were honest and admit that what Paul is saying could at times be true of us. We're not so much like Chrissy. We're more like uh, my daughter Claire when she was two. I'd always need her to drink her water, right? She had this little sippy cup, and she would never want to drink it. And so I'd say, I figured out the, 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 the secret, though. I figured out the, the trick to this. And, Claire, you need to drink your water. Daddy, I don't want to. Oh, okay, let me have a drink. Suck on that little sippy cup. And then what will she say? Oh, I want some. Can I have a drink? Drink up, babe. Sure. But too often, many of us find ourselves in that kind of a position. Oh, you want this? I guess I should probably want this, too. The world looks to this, I guess I should probably look to this too and think this way too. And maybe, I don't know if it'd be the case in this room, maybe some of you think, yeah, so? What's wrong with that? Maybe what everybody else is pursuing is good. Maybe it's not such a bad thing that I sometimes think and value like the people around me. Uh, That's a decent question, I guess. Uh, Let's see what Paul says. He goes on and says, first of all, we live like everybody else. But second, by imitating other people, we actually follow the ways of Satan. His words there are, he says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But make no mistake, this is the same invisible enemy. And the words air and spirit are used here by Paul in order for him to say, you don't see this person, this thing, but you definitely feel its effects, kind of like air and wind. This is the ruler of the air and the spirit, so he uses some of this fancy language, but this is our invisible enemy, elsewhere called the devil or Satan. He he doesn't walk around wearing red tights, carrying a pitchfork, but he does prowl around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And if you're like me, when you read this, you think, come on, Paul, you're being a little dramatic. Like, I follow the ways of Satan? That's a little intense, right? Well, not really. Remember where we first met this enemy? In Genesis chapter 3, and you remember how the story goes, he approaches this woman and her husband, Eve and Adam, and says to them, essentially, are you sure you can trust God? Are you sure that he's not holding out on you? Shouldn't you just sort of test it and see? Sound familiar? So Paul says, first of all, we try to look like everybody else, and secondly, in doing so, we follow the ways of Satan, and third, he does so in a way that ultimately isn't escapable by anybody because he just basically says you do whatever you want. You follow the winds of your own desires. You follow your own passions. You just do whatever it is that you want to do. And don't you love when the Bible describes sin in a way that enables us to say, yeah, that's, uh, that's not true of me. I've never done that. I think this is why we love the ten, part of why we love the Ten Commandments so much. Because we read this list, and for the most part, we're batting decent. Our percentages are okay. Most of us are fine most of the time. We're talking about murder, not guilty. Talking about adultery, not guilty. Talking about bowing down to images, not guilty. Now, maybe not in every case, but for the most part, I think most of us come away from the Ten Commandments looking pretty decent. Don't you love that? And don't you hate when the Bible describes sin in a way that I have to admit is true of me? If we're talking about selfishness, 
about doing what I want, even when it's not wise or best, even when it's not necessarily taking in mind the needs of others around me, if that's what we're talking about, guilty. I love and hate the way A.W. Tozer describes sin. Let me give you this quote. He says, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one, a moral being created to worship before the throne of God, sits on the throne of his own selfhood, and from that elevated position declares, I am. That's a little fancy, but I think I see what he's saying. And again, if we're talking about trying to take God's place as sitting on the throne as ruler of my life, guilty. And as a result of this, as a result of the fact that in some ways we follow what others are doing and so find ourselves doing the work of Satan in some strange way, listening to him instead of listening to God by doing whatever it is we want. As a result of us, this, Paul says, as clear as can be that there are truth, two things true of us without Jesus. Therefore, he says, first of all, we are spiritually dead. He says it twice in this passage just to make sure we get the point. We have separated ourselves from our source of spiritual life. We have said to God, God, I'd rather not do things your way. I'd rather do things my way. And, and God, in, result, in response, says, okay. So we say, God, I'd rather not rely on you. And as a result of this, we find ourselves powerless against our sin. We are stuck. It owns us. We are, as Paul says, spiritually dead. And secondly, he says, because of all this, in light of these facts, we are destined for judgment. Children of wrath, deserving of wrath, is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Essentially, he says, if you stay on this path that you're currently on, eventually you'll meet a holy God who doesn't just say, oh, no big deal, but instead, how could you do this to my world? How could you do this to my people? How could you do this to me? And if what you want is to have nothing to do with me, wish granted. Can you imagine if this was the last word? If Ephesians 2 stopped at verse 3? How depressing would that be? The world is destroying itself and we're all going down with it. So glad you came today. See you at Biscuits and Gravy and then we'll find you next week. No. I mean, this is bad news. But God. Did you see that? First couple of words in verse 4. But God. This just might be the biggest conjunction in all of Scripture. The Bible says we're lost, dead, and headed for wrath. Sadly, very true. But the Bible also says, but God. Also true. And this takes us to the second part, the more important part of this passage, which is the solution. You've got to know the problem, because if you don't know the problem, you don't understand the value of the solution. But once you know the problem, you find yourself saying, okay, is that the end of the story? And if not, how do I get out of this mess? So let's look at what Paul says. Solution. First of all, God made us alive with Christ. Multiple times Paul says this. He wants you to know he made you alive with Christ. You're like a flashlight whose dead batteries have been replaced. A broken down car that just got a new motor. A sailboat right after the beginning of a gust of wind. You were dead. Caught off from all vitality. Caught off from all spiritual life. But in Jesus, you're made alive. And then he says, to clarify the point a little bit, God has saved you. There's that word again. We and our family will do family prayers each night and I have uh, two kids, Claire, who's now five, and Carson, who's uh, two. And so we'll say our prayers together, and we say some different things. We say some, some, recite some scriptures together, and then we'll say the Lord's Prayer. And then each of my children kind of have their own parts in this. Carson's just now learning, but Claire has a prayer that we taught her that she prays every night. And it goes like this, Dear Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for my friends and family and church and school and salvation. 
And over the last few weeks, she's taken to adding at the end of that, and thank you for piggies, amen. (laughs) And then Carson, my son, says, and ducks, amen. So we just love animals in my house, I guess. But I remember after we taught this to her, and she would say it uh, night after night after night, she came to me one time and she says, Daddy, what is salvation? I said, well, babe, let me put it simple. It's when you're in trouble and God helps you. Amen? And here what Paul says is, you were in trouble and he helped you. He saved you. From what? From the wrath that you deserved for rejecting him and going your own way. So he's made us alive with Christ. He has saved us. And here's the part I really want to key in on. He did all this by grace. I don't have a fancy definition for grace. We could talk about the Greek and Hebrew words if you want, but in the end, I don't know if they'd help us all that much. Grace is uh, not getting what you deserve. Or maybe it's this, getting better than what you deserve. Or, or maybe it would be truth to say, getting the opposite of what you deserve. Grace is a love you didn't earn. Or again, a love when you earn precisely the contrary. Paul says grace, and not just grace. Notice the second time he says that he can't help himself. He says the incomparable riches of his grace. He's just trying to find words to emphasize how great this is. He adds some others too. As soon as he says but, he says, but God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is looking at someone in a situation of need and not saying you probably deserved it, but instead feeling pity and compassion towards that person's need. He combines this with kindness. Kindness is mercy in action. Kindness is doing good for someone. Kindness is doing what will help someone. So if mercy is when you see someone sitting in a ditch, you think, ah, I feel bad for you, then kindness is helping them up, cleaning them off, getting them a new set of clothes, buying them dinner, and setting them on their way. Paul says that's how God is toward you. He is merciful. He is kind. And then in the word that means the most to most of us, he says, if you want to understand grace, look at this great love that God has for you. Love. Seeking your good even at great cost to me. And nothing has helped me better understand God's love as being a father. Now, in part, it's because I have children who require mercy. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes they make decisions that require me to act mercifully and gracious to them. My son has this habit of, he's a tough kid, he has this habit of just, you know, punching things. (laughs) And he's at a very bad height for that, if you know what I mean. If you've had a two-year-old, you understand exactly what I'm saying. And sometimes he'll do things that require mercy from me, you know? And Claire's not so much rough and tumble, but she'll say things that are, first of all, hilarious, but also sometimes accidentally quite rude. I remember one time she came up to me. She was probably still three years old when she said this. She came up to me. She walks in the room and says, "Uh, Daddy, I'm a girl. I said, yes, you are. She said, you're a boy. I said, yes, I am. She said, but you look like a girl. (laughs) Where'd that come from, you know? And it's not just me either. Uh, she, she requires mercy from others. Uh, she was, um, when we first moved uh, to Joplin, she was in church, children's church. She was three and a half, going on four at the time. And so she's back in the, in the you know, during the service working with the kids. And it's actually one of my students who was working with her. She didn't tell me this story until much later. This girl, Peyton, was working in there. And Peyton, a sweet little girl, uh, said to Claire, Claire, that's such a beautiful dress that you're wearing. And Claire said, yes, it is, isn't it? But then she got real shy and said, but we shouldn't talk about our beautiful dresses because not all girls have beautiful dresses like you. (laughs) Yeah, right? So sometimes kids require mercy. And yes, I have learned some things about God's mercy as a result of their requiring my and others' mercy, but that's actually not what I'm talking about. 
when I say that I've learned most about God's love by being a father. Maybe it's, maybe it's not so much the mercy they require as it is the love that is shared between father and children. Carson uh, will sometimes just randomly say, I love you too, <laughs> which is the sweetest thing in the world because it means he knows he's loved and he's saying what he's learned to say. Claire will sometimes just randomly come up to me and kiss me on the cheek and say, Daddy, I love you. And not all the time. And yes, often when she wants something, but sometimes she does it uh, just to do it. And when those things happen, when my children say this, I don't care what else is going on in the world. I'm good. You know what I mean? You've been there before. And of course, it's true that their love for me is nothing compared to mine for them because I'm their dad, because I'm their father, and I love them so much, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, The other day, Claire said to me, she came up and asked me, "Uh, Daddy, what would you do if we were attacked by a tiger? (laughs) The things they ask, you know, what would you do if we were attacked by a tiger? And they're like, you mean like our family? Yeah, if a tiger came after us. Well, I'd fight it. Would you win? No, but I'd certainly try to fight it long enough so the rest of you could get away, you know. And she said, so you'd die instead of us? Gladly. Gladly. That's how much I love you. But that's not even what I mean. When I say that being a father has taught me more about God's love than I've ever learned in any other thing. Uh, Being a dad has helped me understand God's love, not because of the love I have, but of the love that I cannot imagine. Love for people who intentionally hurt my children. Listen, I like all of you, and I can't wait to have biscuits and gravy with you, and hopefully someday I'll be able to come back and and bring my kids, and you can meet them, and it would be fun and wonderful, but if you punch my son, like, you and I are going to have problems. You know what I mean? If I hear one of you saying mean things to my daughter, you and I are probably not going to be friends, right? Because we protect our kids. But notice what Scripture teaches. If here's a father, and here's a child, and over here are people responsible for the death of that child then in this equation, we're over here. We're the ones who are responsible for the death of God's Son, and yet He has reached out in love toward us. I heard one time about a story about a couple of men. Rick was a father of a young man named James, called him Jimmy, about two years old, and Kevin was a 15-year-old who lived on that same street. Now, Kevin was a kid who was troubled. He was a problem kid. He was the kind of kid you worried about. He's the kind of kid that you tried to keep an eye on. He was the one who would, uh, you know, knock down mailboxes with his baseball bat and these kind of things. And he would always drive his, his grandmother's car. It was an older car. Back in my, like when I was young, we call it a hoopty. I don't know what they'd call it today. But it was this old car. And he would blaze down the street, too young to drive, blaze down the street, way too fast. People would always tell him to slow down, but he didn't listen. And everybody feared that the worst would happen. And one day the worst did. Rick was at home with his son, Jimmy. Jimmy was out front playing with a ball, and the ball bounced into the street, and Rick didn't see it. Jimmy followed it. Kevin blazed down the street, and you can imagine what happened next. And Kevin was only 15, so he wasn't uh, tried as an adult, but he was put in prison for a couple years at a nearby facility. And about two weeks into his prison sentence, he's scared half to death at the fact that he has to try to survive in this place for a couple years. And the day comes for visiting. He certainly doesn't expect to have a visitor, but other prisoners are being greeted by their family members and friends. And I don't know if you've ever had to visit a family member or a friend at prison. I hope you haven't, but if you've had people there, I hope you've been able to comfort them in some way and encourage them. It's not a fun experience. You typically wait in a couple of different lines, and then you end up in essentially a cubicle sort of thing. Maybe you've seen a picture on television, and then you get to talk to them for about half an hour. Anyway, Kevin was in his cell trying to stay alive, and he received a knock on it, and the officer said, you got a visitor. I got a visitor? 
who would this be? He figured it was probably his grandmother who raised him, although he was very surprised that she would take the trip and make the time to come see him. And so he's walking with the officer to the place where you sit down and meet with the people who you're talking to. And he rounds the corner and walks into this cubicle and he looks up and he sees Rick, the man whose son he just killed. He doesn't know what to do, so he sits down. And Rick just looks at him for about 25, 26, 27 minutes. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't pick up the phone. So Kevin doesn't pick up his. They just look at each other. And then eventually, right about the time when this visit is almost over, Rick picks up the phone. So Kevin picks up the phone. And Rick says, you have done a horrible thing to me, but I want you to know that I forgive you. And he hangs up the phone and he leaves. Kevin is blown away by this. It's not exactly what he expected from this man. And so he goes back to his cell and thinks about this. Two weeks later, the day comes for visits, and sure enough, he gets a knock on a cell. Sure enough, it's again Rick. Every two weeks, for the two-year duration of his prison term, this man comes and visits him. And eventually, he's able to say more than just, I forgive you. Eventually, he gets to know Kevin's story, asks him about his fears, asks him about his pain, gets to know him at a level deeper than he ever did before. Eventually, they become what one from the outside looking in might even call friends. And then the two years are up and Kevin's prison term is done and he gets out and he goes home and he walks into his grandmother's house and his grandmother says, Rick would like to have you over for dinner. And Kevin is is not necessarily shocked by this, but he has to admit a certain level of concern. It's one thing to talk to the man whose son you killed when you're separated by plexiglass and there are men with guns making sure nothing crazy happens. It's another thing to walk into this man's house with nobody else there. But he believes that he has gotten to know Rick, and so he says, okay. And so that evening, he goes over to Rick's home, and he walks into the house. And sure enough, Rick isn't there waiting to harm him. He's in the kitchen making food, and he tells Kevin to have a seat at the table. He comes to greet him, and he sits down across the table. And Rick says to Kevin, now with no glass in between the two of them, you have taken my only son from me, and that is a debt you could never repay. So please do not try. But I still want a boy. And so if you'll accept my invitation, I want to ask you to become part of my family. And he slides across the, piece of ta- the table a piece of paper. And Kevin looks down and it's the piece of paper and it is an adoption certificate awaiting one more signature. That is a love that I will never pretend to understand. But one for which I am and will remain eternally grateful. Do you understand that it is your sin that put Jesus on the cross? I don't care if you haven't sinned in years. I don't care if you've only committed small sins your entire life. Even that was enough that Jesus would have to die as a sacrifice for your sins. His perfect life offered to atone for your sinful life. So you mean to tell me that our, that our sin is responsible for the death of God's Son and yet God offers to adopt us? That's crazy. That's true. And Philip Yancey knows what he's talking about when he says there's nothing you could do to make God love you any more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. That is grace. And grace is the first and last word of the Christian faith. Grace is how God saved us through Jesus. The proper posture of the Christian life is hands open and outstretched to heaven, not so much offering anything, but receiving and resting in what God has done on our behalf. 
before we do anything in the Christian life, before we step forward in obedience, before we try to bring other people in, before we respond in any way, we receive a love we haven't earned and don't in the least deserve. It's Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Indeed, you and I have been saved by grace. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, we ask that you would give us a spirit of grace. We acknowledge in this room the presence of your own spirit. And where your spirit is, there's freedom, there's love, there's mercy, there's kindness, there's grace. We pray, God, that you would turn us into gracious people, no question. But first of all, God, we ask that you would give us a personal sense of your love and grace for us. Where there are no feelings, Lord, we ask that you would help us to rest in the truth of the gospel. But I do ask, God, right now that you would, in a powerful way, send your spirit into the room. So as we continue to reflect on the words of scripture and respond in song, that you would consistently remind us that we can't ever earn your love and we don't have to because you've already offered it to us in the person of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.